You are listening to the sermon audio of New Hope Community Church in Canaan, New Hampshire. For more information, visit our website at newhopecommunity.net. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. But in your heart, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. It is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you. Also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. These are the words of the Lord. You may be seated. Hedonism can be defined as the pursuit of pleasure, self-indulgence, and self-gratification. And perhaps even the recent opioid crisis that has captured the attention of, of many states is part of a reflection on our innate desire that we run from pain and suffering, even when the cost may be very destructive. In other words, given a choice, we by our very nature will always Choose pleasure over pain, happiness over suffering. But I wonder if in some ways, even as the church today, have we bought into a hedonistic mindset? I heard someone on the radio the other day in a Christian broadcast make this statement that that God wants you to be happy. Is that true? What if we have it wrong? that there is a place for pain and suffering. And so I want us to turn to 1 Peter chapter 3, where in our study of this particular letter, we see that Peter in chapters 3 and 4 not only does not avoid the subject of Christian suffering, but puts it right out there and then takes it apart for us to look at. And so notice how verse 13 begins. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? That verse puts right in front of all of us the question of suffering for your faith. And and notice it's a rhetorical question in verse 13. Well, if if you do good, who's really going to want to harm you? Now that makes sense when you think about what Peter had just talked about. So in our previous study, we saw he looked at the area of relationships and said your relationship to the state in a a godly way should 
quiet the criticism that's leveled at you. It will prove it to be groundless. And if you demonstrate a Christ-likeness in your relationship as a servant to your master, as an employer in the workplace, you will quiet the unjust criticism that comes your way. And then finally, in the marriage, if you reflect godliness, that should hopefully be used to win your partner to the Lord. So the question would be, well then, if you're doing all of that, will that remove the reality of persecution? And so this particular rhetorical question expects an answer of no. But yet as we, we think about that, notice that we live in a world where we see examples of suffering for our faith. And you can run the gamut on that from as Christians, maybe for many of us, feeling somewhat marginalized in our society, uh, criticized unjustly, to, to the full gamut on the other end of those brothers and sisters in Christ who will be martyred because of one thing, their confession of faith in Jesus Christ, their desire to share that faith with others. So here Peter now puts that question right out there. The question of suffering for your faith. But then Peter has been a servant of Christ for many, many years as he's now writing this particular letter. Somewhat 30 to 35 years we can speculate after Christ's resurrection. So what has Peter learned? Well, Peter has learned that suffering for your faith is to be expected. Not only should we not avoid the question, but let's be right up front. This should be expected of those who are followers of Christ. Now, as, as I say that, I want you to think for a moment what a reversal in Peter's thinking here. I said as we started, maybe we have it all wrong. Our, our perception and understanding of suffering for your faith is, is not something we should run from, but is it actually something we should embrace? And what would cause that thinking to be turned upside down like that? Well, just think for a moment what Peter's initial reaction was when Jesus said to him, the Son of Man must be persecuted, he will be ridiculed, and he will be killed. When Jesus said that to Peter about suffering, I'm sure most of you remember Peter's response. He, he pulled Christ aside and began to rebuke Christ. Now we're looking at him saying, what, what's changed? Peter's perspective on suffering for your faith now matches that of his Lord and Savior's perspective. His own earthly human understanding has been turned upside down. And so let's take a closer look at what that entails, looking at verse 14. Verse 14 we read, But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. So we have an insight here into suffering that results from faithfulness to Christ. This is not where God's disciplining someone, like in Israel's history, because they were unfaithful. Here you have believers who have been faithful to Christ, and the result of that is they are now the target of 
increasing persecution and difficulty. Recall how the letter begins to those who are scattered throughout these various areas. Peter's audience could, could quickly either themselves say, Peter, we're, we're, we're tracking with you. We know what you're talking about. Or they could say, clearly we know other family members who have gone through exactly what you're saying, suffering as a result of faithfulness. And so you see in that 14th verse, the word suffer literally means to, to experience passion or emotions, but from the outside. In, in other words, it, it's attacks that are coming from external to them. And in this case, it is because of their testimony for Christ. But then he also says, those who experience suffering like this, they are considered blessed. Now, you'd want to think of, well, why would Peter say that? Well, one is that would imply when you're going through something as a result of your faith and you're being tested and tried, you don't feel like you're blessed. And in fact, many of these believers could have been questioning, did we do something wrong? Uh, is it because of our lack of faithfulness, our lack of diligence that this is happening to us? The word blessed means literally you, you have the same characteristics of God. You are reflecting the character of God. And it also emphasizes kind of a unique joy associated with participating in the kingdom of God. Um, turn with me to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. And as you listen to Peter's words, you can't help but hear the teaching and words of Christ, uh, which should also mark us, that when people hear us speak, when they hear us pray, uh, we, we should be able to hear the words of Christ, the words of God. But in Matthew chapter 5, verses 10 through 12, Peter would have heard this message as Jesus gave it to his disciples near the beginning of his ministry. Follow along as I read verses 10 through 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And as you let those words sink in, notice the condition that you're persecuted because of me. Uh, too often, sometimes, I think as Christians, we misread this, and we think just because someone gives us a hard time, we're being persecuted. Um, maybe the reason for that hard time you're experiencing is you're just an obnoxious person. You know, th this reminds us, the issue here is your faith in Christ, your stand upon the truth. And you can't help but read these words and then kind of think, is that... Is that the mindset that the average Christian has today? That, that this is a condition of, of blessedness, of, of proof that we are walking with the Lord? In a day and an age where for many people they think God wants you to be happy, that's a very hedonistic, unscriptural definition of what God desires of us. That he speaks of joy that is ours in the state of this persecution. But it's a blessedness rooted in our identity in Christ, not in circumstances. 
And so returning to 1 Peter chapter 3, notice the last half of verse 14 is a quotation. And so if you were to look at the bottom of your Bibles, you'd probably see the reference is Isaiah 8, 12. Uh, so it's interesting that Peter would cite a passage from the book of Isaiah. And as we saw earlier in this chapter, uh, Isaiah is one of the go-to places that Peter references. But why is Isaiah 8, 12 very significant to an audience who is experiencing some persecution and we know, according to history, it will only get worse, uh, as Nero will assume and vent his anger toward Christianity. But at this point, why would the words of, of Isaiah 8:12, this fact, do not fear what they fear, be so relevant? Well, you don't need to turn to Isaiah 8, but I'll just tell you what the context was in Isaiah 8. God speaks to the southern kingdom of Judah and their king to say to him, if you trust me, you do not need to fear the nations of Syria, Assyria, and others who are forming an alliance against you. So in the midst of this alliance against you, against my people, you do not need to fear at all. And so that's why under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Peter goes back to the book of Isaiah to say, look at the comparison of the times. In Peter's day, Christianity was a minority. It was growing, but certainly was not the religion that permeated the Roman Empire. Uh, but a small fraction of the people in his day were believers. And to encourage them in that, he draws from the book of Isaiah. So suffering results from faithfulness to Jesus Christ in certain circumstances. And certain believers are in that place where that is what they will be called upon to live out their faith. But more than just standing firm in the faith, we also need to speak boldly about our faith, even in the midst of persecution and suffering. And so you look at with me at 1 Peter 3, and you have verses 15 and 16. Uh, commonly, this is referred to, and I've used this phrase before, the apologetical mandate. In other words, the, the command here that we should be ready and able to give an answer for our faith. Uh, but I want to remind you that in this context, Peter was not thinking of some kind of formal apologetical class. Uh, he was writing to people in the real world. People in the midst of persecution, when you would be tempted to possibly tone down your testimony, uh, to be silent, to retreat. He says, in those circumstances more than any others, speak boldly. And so to, to look at those words, you have the first thing you need to do is set apart Christ as Lord. Uh, many translations have honor Christ as Lord. In other words, you will not speak boldly about your faith if your faith is not authentic. And if Christ does not reign and rule in your life, he's, your testimony verbally is not going to mean anything. So there has to be authenticity. Uh, so set apart, honor Christ first and foremost in your own heart. But then notice the other phrase, be prepared, be ready to give an answer for the hope that is in you. 
And it's that word answer that is the root for our English word apologetics. Uh, it's the word apologia, which means to, to give a verbal defense or explanation of your Christian faith. Now, in one sense, we realize in, in Peter's context, there's going to be times where this persecution comes suddenly and abruptly, where, where they haven't been preparing themselves mentally to write something out. But the key is that because they have set apart Christ as Lord, assuming they are reading the word and growing, that when that time comes, they will be able to give an answer for the hope that is in them. And that would also imply to you and to me that as we look ahead to this week, how can we be preparing to give an answer for the hope that is in us? Well, looking at the news, knowing what's going on in our world, uh, being consistent in our own devotions, Bible reading, prayer time. Th those are ways we are preparing ourselves. And I'm sure you've had this happen where you may be discussing something with someone and, and certain verses come to your mind. And it's not that you maybe read those verses that morning, but somewhere along the process of your spiritual growth, you, you took those in. You, you thought about them. You memorized them. And the Spirit recalls them at just the right time in the right conversation. Again, Jesus would, would warn his apostles as he was getting ready to send them out. He would say, when you are arrested, don't, don't worry about what you should say because the Spirit will tell you what to say. And so there's a right balance here. We need to prepare ourselves. We need to be in God's Word. But, but also when those moments come, if you have been faithful in those other spiritual disciplines and graces, you can be confident that in Christ, those right words will be recalled by the Spirit for you to share. But you have a reminder in this apologetical mandate of the attitude in which the truth is communicated. And so Peter tells us, you must do this with gentleness and fear. Uh, notice the NIV uh, renders it with gentleness and respect. So let's take the first one. Gentleness means simply with humility or meekness. Uh, we, we don't speak to the person who uh, is an unbeliever in the sense of, well, we're so much better because we know this and you don't. Uh, we approach them as we, we were sinners just like you once. And so we approach them in humility. Uh, in a spirit of gentleness. But the second word is somewhat misleading because NIV has respect, uh, but the word literally is fear. And, and I'm confident what Peter's referring to is we do this out of fear and reverence for God. It has nothing to do with we clearly don't fear the people who are persecuting us. Uh, we don't fear the anticipated response we'll get if we share Christ with someone. But we should always do all of things ultimately in the fear and reverence of God. Uh, and Peter's made that quite clear just throughout this letter when he would say, make sure you honor the king, but fear God. Uh, and that puts everything in its proper perspective. And so as we start to, to think upon these two aspects, not just avoiding the whole question, of Christians and suffering, uh, but then considering 
the fact that this is to be expected. We, we should not be surprised at this. Albert Moeller, who's the president of Southwestern Seminary, a very outspoken person on a political level as well as on an evangelical level, has said somewhere along the way, the church today has lost sight and thought the world is supposed to be our friend. And, and we've fallen under this thought process that, well, why do they mistreat us? What, what's wrong with us? What are we doing that's not right? And I think he raises a good point. Somehow we've forgotten the, the world is not our friend. It is our mission field. Uh, but it was never intended to somehow pat us on the back or, or commend us or just say, we think you're doing a great job. Think once again of Jesus' words. If they hated me, they will hate you. And so Peter confronts us with that truth. And we have this look at, suffering for your faith, sort of turned on its head and given a biblical perspective here. But there's one other aspect to this, is that we can be assured that those who suffer for their faith will be victorious. Think of what that would mean to Peter's hearers. But he would not just say, look, it's, it's not really going to get better. And the reality is it may get worse for some of you, but, but here's the assurance, you will be victorious. And you could just picture for a moment, if you just heard that comment, you were sitting in a first century place of someone's home gathered for worship. You had to leave your homeland and you were in a new town, new surroundings. You might be thinking, what? Why? Because looking at it, I don't feel victorious. I don't look very victorious. I, I see people dying for their faith. So, so Peter, tell me why I should believe you. And Peter does exactly that in verses 17 through 22. And notice verse 17, the first assurance we have of this is where in verse 17 he says, it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Now by saying it is better if it is God's will, he is actually saying God controls everything, including the suffering that you are presently under. That it may be, again, the result of sin, Satan's attempt to thwart the work of the church. But if God is sovereign, does he control everything, including your suffering and your trials? What, what a note of assurance and confidence. And we can assume, given some knowledge of the scriptures, even if many of those Peter's writing to uh, may have been Gentiles in these locations, think of the story of Joseph. Get to the end of Genesis, and, and what does Joseph say to his brothers? He says, you intended this for harm, but God intended it for good. He was really saying all of this demonstrates the sovereignty of God. There's an assurance that in the midst of suffering for our faith, we are victorious and will be victorious. 
Notice the opening hymn that we sung this morning has the stanza in it, I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. That's looking at suffering and trials upside down. Because we would look at those and say, God, just remove them. That, that's what we want. We want pleasure over pain. We want happiness over suffering. And God's saying, then you really don't understand my ways. Consistently through the Old Testament, from Joseph to every believer today. But he has another means of encouraging them for this assurance. Because our circumstances, by the end of this letter, have not changed dramatically. They don't suddenly look up after Peter's done and this letter is read in their presence and they say, wow, our world has changed. Nero's gone. Everybody likes us now. But the assurance is driven deep because of the example of Christ. In verses 18 through 20, he speaks of what Christ endured. And if we are in Christ, then the victory that Christ attained is also going to be shared in by each one who faithfully endures suffering. And so you see in verse 18, verse 18, for Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit. And notice that 18th verse right away reminds you, was the suffering of Christ unjust? And notice how Peter put that. Here is he is righteous, but he suffers for the unrighteous. Peter's audience, in one sense, are suffering unjustly. They're living out their faith. They're, they're being, as Peter said, um, good citizens, uh, good servants. And yet, look, look at their life. Look what they're going through. In a sense, it's unjust but not then when you hold it up to the example of Christ. Christ suffered that we might be brought to God. You get to verse 19, and many of you may have been wondering, what is this referring to? That, that after Christ's death, that he descends and speaks to the spirits in prison. Now, I don't want to get sidetracked here, and I love what Martin Luther said about verse 19. Uh, Luther looked at this verse and, and he said, this is one of the most strangest and obscure verses in the New Testament. And after studying it, I'm still not sure what the apostle meant. And, and so we can, there are many different interpretations and takes on this, but I think the bottom line is it speaks of the triumphant proclamation of Jesus Christ, that his suffering did not defeat the will of God. It did not prevent the plan of salvation from being fulfilled. It actually was the plan of salvation fulfilled. What a note of triumph here that, that comes ringing back that Peter says, as believers, you share in this victory. That even your intense suffering, if it leads to your very death here on earth, is a victory. 
just as Christ was. Because he goes on in verses 20 through 22 to remind us of the exaltation that awaits Christ. But you notice in verse 20, he brings up the scene of Noah. And you have God's deliverance of him, a minority in a time of a very wicked and evil world, uh, brought safely through God's judgment because of their faith and trust in God. Is it possible, Peter says, you know what? You're a lot like the people in Noah's day. You're putting your trust in God for him to save you. And even when you confess Christ as Lord and Savior and, and you are baptized, you're, you're speaking of what is a reality in your life. He's very careful to make sure you understand baptism does not save you here. It's the confession of a pure conscience. In other words, an affirmation outwardly of what has already taken place inwardly. And so you have for Peter's audience, you're, you're a minority. You're no different than Noah proclaiming the righteousness of God faithfully day in and day out. And most people did not respond to that. And clearly in, in Noah's day, it's just he and his family that are spared. But then notice as well, verse 22, in this assurance of what Christ attained through his suffering. Verse 22, speaking of Christ, he has gone into the heavens he is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. You may feel as a believer in the midst of suffering for your faith, and as we'll see as we continue our study, dealing with trials in our own personal lives, you may feel many times very defeated and powerless, but you're forgetting what is already attained for you in Christ Jesus. That just as he now sits at the Father's right hand, a position of equal honor and authority, and reigns over all, that you look forward to that day when you will reign with him. That even suffering for your faith will not be able to prevent that as you endure faithfully for Jesus Christ. It's interesting, as you think of the book of Acts, you have a, a scene where persecution's starting to grow. Uh, and it moves from just on like Paul and Peter and Barnabas to it, it now affecting the whole group. And in Acts 5, you have a scene where all the apostles are gathered before the Sanhedrin uh, to be grilled. Within another chapter later, you have Stephen, the first martyr of the early church. But in that scene where the apostles are all cross-examined and threatened by the Sanhedrin, it says that they return to the other believers, praising God, counting themselves worthy to suffer for Jesus Christ. A completely upside down understanding of the place that suffering for our faith has I think we need to know that as a church. We need to know that as individual Christians. The place that suffering and standing firm in the faith should have in a hedonistic world that seeks happiness over holiness. Let's pray. 
Our gracious God, we thank you for just how relevant your word is, that it could touch and speak to the hearts of believers in the first century. And it speaks just as powerfully to each one of us. May we be able to look at suffering from a Christian perspective and turn our world's understanding of it upside down in a way that honors you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.